Welcome to the Old Bridge Baptist Church podcast. We hope you find the following sermon to be edifying for your walk with the Lord. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also visit our website at obb.church for more info. Now here's the sermon. Appreciate that. Good to see everybody here today. And uh, we're going to be starting a new series today. And I'm going to have you bio- turn your Bibles with me, please, to First Peter. First Peter. We're actually going to get into two verses today. Um, but I have a bit of a context I think is important when you study, get into a new book. It's very important to get a hold of the context of that book. And so that's what we want to do. This morning, Brother Mark read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. It's a very good book as a precursor or an introduction to this book. If I would title the book of Peter, 1 Peter, I would title it Living Holy in an Unholy World. Living a holy life in a world that is unholy. And I believe in Peter's time, the unholiness and the wickedness far exceeded even the wickedness of our society, which is heading in that direction. And I would say in Isaiah's time was the same. Living holy in an unholy world. Isaiah, when King Uzziah died, he was a king for 52 years in Judah. He was a godly king. He walked with God and he did a lot of good for the nation. He brought that nation of Judah uh, back into um, uh, relevance in the world because they had drifted and and fame in the world and, and God's name being lifted up in the world and fear of God in the world. But unfortunately, because of his accomplishments, he was lifted up in pride. And he walked into the temple and he tried to make a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice in the temple and was pushed out by the priest and was stricken with leprosy. And he died a leper. And that's why Isaiah, as a young man, is looking up to heaven because he's saying to God, my life has just been rattled. My king has turned away from you and has died as a leopard out of fellowship with you in heaven, but out of fellowship. And so he's looking to God for answers. And by the way, if you're struggling with something today, we need to look to God in heaven as he sits on his throne in control. And he does. And when he sees that vision of God, he sees the seraphim saying this, not love, love, love is the Lord, although God is loving. God is love. Not truth, truth, truth is Lord, although God is truthful. What does he say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God. He sees his seraphim repeating this, that God above every other attribute is holy. He's transcendent. He's above his creation. You can't compare him to anything. He is pure. 
He can't, so pure, he can't even look at sin, the Bible tells us in the back of chapter one. And the problem with Isaiah is the same problem you and I have. We live in an unholy world. And when Isaiah got a glimpse of God, he said, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And why? By the way, unclean lips is what? An indication of an unclean heart, right? What comes out of our mouth is a reflection of our heart. I'm a man of an unclean heart because I have seen you. You see, it's easy to compare ourselves to the world, to people. But when we get in God's word and we compare ourselves to God, we're undone. Even as believers. Because Isaiah was a believer, I think, at that time. But he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why? Because I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And get this, and get this for the rest of your lives. You are being conformed to this world. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be not conformed or made into the image of the world. And in the Greek, it means stop being conformed. We are being conformed to this world. The morality or the immorality or the, and the philosophy and all the wickedness of this world bounces off of us all the time. And it's trying to conform us in an image of Christ. And we have to stop it. Very difficult. So as we look at this book of Peter, I believe, again, the theme of the book, and even for today, is living, trying to live a holy life. Obeying God's commandments. Not just in our actions, but in our thoughts. Striving towards that holiness. In a world that has no interest in God's commandments at all. Against God's commandments. Do what I want to do type of thing. And that's a challenge you and I have. To try to live this holy life. We cannot make excuses. We cannot say it's, it's just too difficult. We have the power of the spirit of God in us. We have the word of God in us. We have a new nature as our allies. Now, let me just give you some verses here as a context. Again, I think it's important. There's the theme of the book. Let me give you a context of the book. I want you to skip down with me, first of all, to verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. Now look at this. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you're talking about living holy in an unholy world, you're talking about persecution and suffering. There's going to be persecution and there's going to be suffering. In this book, 15 times and eight different words are used for suffering. Even the very first verse, they're scattered. They're being persecuted. If you want to live for God, there's going to be persecution in some form. We'll see that today. Now, I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 
I think this will kind of help us with a date. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, agape, those that are loved of God, do not think it strange concerning, and there's our word again, the fiery trial which is to try you, and that should be, it could be rendered more in the present because it's all present um, verbs. I understand why they, why they did that, but if I want you to think of this as the fiery trials which are trying you right now, okay? You're going through trials. As though some strange thing happened to you. They were going through fiery trials. Now, in July of 64 AD, Nero burnt the city of Rome intentionally. 70% of it was burnt down. And the reason he did is because he wanted to rebuild it. No pun intended, but he took a lot of heat for that. Okay. And so what he did is he shifted the blame on Christians. And there is a great, great persecution of Christians. And I think that probably gives us some insight to when this book was written around that time, around 64 AD. And, and scholars differ on the exact time, but they usually put it between like 62 and 66. Okay. So there's this persecution going on, Christians. Now, I'll give you one more verse that helps with this setting. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 15. I think this indicates where Peter wrote this from. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Mark, by the way, is John Mark. John Mark was a close associate, associate of Peter. That's why he wrote the book. He wrote the Gospel of Mark because he had clear accounts of, of the life of Christ that was given to him by Peter. Um, so so he's, that's just a side note. Now, she who is in Babylon, Babylon, and you don't have to turn there, but if you go to Revelation 17 and 18, I believe Babylon is a reference to Rome, okay? And then to further support that, if you would read the early fathers, they also mention that Babylon is a reference to Rome. And it's probably coded so he doesn't, he's, because of persecution. So Peter is probably writing this letter from Rome around 64 AD, where there's great persecution of Christians. And the she who is in Babylon, again, scholars differ um, on, on who this is. But when it says elect together with you, I think it's, it's probably speaking of the church. It's a code word for the church of Rome, probably, which Paul would have planted years earlier. Um, so Peter writing from Rome, okay, to those who are scattered. If you go to verse 1 now, let's skip over to verse 1. And, and then we'll, we'll nearly through here. But let's, let's go over to verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, sorry. Chapter 1, verse 1. And I don't want to get into one other point. I know we're doing a lot of introduction, but you need to do that, I think, when you first do a book. And then we'll look at two verses. But look what it says, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to the pilgrims of the dispersion. That means they were scattered. It's the same word that's used in James, the same Greek word, they're scattered. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's Asia and Asia Minor. So he's writing to believers who are persecuted, so much so that they're scattered, they're fleeing. Now, I think it's also significant that this book was written to Gentiles. Peter was an apostle to the Jews, Galatians chapter 2. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, Galatians chapter 2, right? But here, Peter is writing to the Gentiles. Now, I want to prove that, first of all, with a couple of scriptures. So I want you to see that this book was written to the Gentiles, and then I want to explain why that's significant. Now, look at verse 14. What I'm going to prove, chapter 1, verse 14, this book was written to Gentile, at least primarily to Gentile believers who are being persecuted. We've established it was written around 64 AD. We established there's great persecution. We established he probably written it from Rome. And now we're going to establish and prove that it was written to Gentiles. As obedient children, verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. In other words, they didn't have the laws. They didn't have the decrees that the Jews had. That shows they're Gentiles. Now, let me show you another verse. Verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. Aimless conduct from the tradition of your fathers. That's not the Jews. That's the Gentiles. Now, if that doesn't convince you, I'm going to clinch it on this one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. Verse 10 is, is the key, but let me, let me just read verse 9. Again, written to the Gentiles who are being persecuted. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now look at this, verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's clearly written to the Gentiles. The Jews were the people of God. So Peter is writing this to the persecuted people that are scattered in Asia and Asia Minor, and they're Gentiles. Now, why is that significant? Because up to this point, all the persecutions have come from the Jews to the Jews. Even Paul. Paul was persecuted because even though he was a he was a um, apostle to the um, Gentiles, it was often in the synagogues when they persecuted Paul, and they were the Jews that persecuted Paul. The church of Jerusalem that's written about from James, that church was persecuted by the Jews. The Romans didn't get involved with these things. The Romans thought that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism, and they didn't want to be involved with it. 
The Jews had to come to them basically for it up to this point. But now the secular Roman government is persecuting the Gentiles. Why? I think because Christianity has made an impact on the world. You see, when Christianity was this tiny little sect in Judaism, it was kind of like a fly and, it, and Romans just swatted, just get, get rid of this. But now it's become a problem because they're turning the world upside down. Now, the other thing that's significant is culture. Is culture. There are different cultures in this room because culture, much of culture, can be traced back to race. Culture can be defined as all the ways of life, including arts, beliefs, institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. Culture has been called the way of life for an entire society. As such, it includes codes of manners, dress, language, religion, rituals, and art. Why is culture significant? Because in order to get to know people, in order to be able to really minister to people, you have to understand the culture. That's Missions 101, and that's important for us as a church here and in our community as well, and as we look to this book, because Peter will be addressing the Gentile culture. Now, four points today, two verses. Be different than the world because you're set apart to God. Be different than the world. Holiness is being set apart from God. Number two, the unholy world, the world that is not concerned about obeying God's commandments will persecute us in some form. Number three, salvation or positional holiness is a work of God. And number four, salvation is an event, but progressive sanctification, which by the way is progressing in our holiness or being come, becoming more like Christ, is a process, a lifelong process. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll consider this passage of scripture. Father, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us from the word of God today. We pray that Jesus Christ will be lifted up. We pray, Lord, we will walk out of here different people than we walked in. With a desire, a renewed, strengthening desire for 2022, to pursue holiness, which is really pursuing you. And Father, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be different than the world because you're set apart to God. We get that right from chapter 1, verse 1, when the Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, there are no more apostles today. Okay, There were 12 apostles and, 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 and the gospel says there are 12 thrones, there are 12 apostles, and you would have had to see the, the risen Christ. And um, um, so if you ever see a church that says apostolic church, there's a problem. Anyway, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, we know who wrote it, it's Peter, to the pilgrims. And then, and then we mentioned the place. Pilgrim literally means to pass through. Okay, The pilgrims, let me give you an example of pilgrim. 
if I was driving to Delaware, I would have to go from New Jersey, or I wouldn't have to do it, but I probably would go from New Jersey to Pennsylvania and to Delaware. Now, if I was driving and for some reason I got pulled over by a police officer and he, and if he said, what are you doing in Pennsylvania? If I got pulled over in Pennsylvania, I would say, I'm going to Delaware. I'm traveling from Jersey to Delaware. I'm passing through, okay? That's a pilgrim. Now, in the Bible times, you didn't have a car, so it would take ages to pass through. So a pilgrim doesn't belong in that state or country. A pilgrim is passing through. That's what God calls us. We don't belong to this world. We don't fit in with this world as believers. We're passing through. And so be different than the world because you're set apart to God. And we see that verses right down in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. Lust there is a strong desire to fulfill our flesh. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is desperately wicked. That's us, okay? That's when it talks about lust. Don't give in to that. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, that the flesh lusteth against the spirit. That's the word. A strong desire against the Holy Spirit and a strong desire against God's commandments. That's what's inside of us, right? Now there's a change here, you see, it says it. As obedient children, obedient to what? To God's commandments, in our actions and in our thoughts. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust. Don't live like the world lives, okay? Don't give in to your flesh as in your ignorance. You used to do that, but then you got saved and you understood you shouldn't do that anymore. But as he called you, who called you, God saved us for what reason? To go to heaven? No. That's, a, that's, a, that's secondary. Because as he called you, he saved you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. In other words, God saved you to be holy. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So God wants us to be different than the world because he set us apart from the world and apart to himself. And the reason why I word it that way is because for us to be holy, we have to be in fellowship with God. Where we're set apart to God, set apart from the world, we're, we're fellowshipping with God, and as a result, God is making us more like Christ. That's it. Now, I'll give you one other verse here. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. To support the same thing. First Peter chapter 2. And we'll get into these verses more. As we progress um, through. But I want to at least highlight this. First Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Now look at this. Beloved I beg you. As sojourners and pilgrims. And we talked about what pilgrims mean. A sojourner is someone. Who is a resident alien. You live in a country. Right? But you're not a, you're not a, um, sorry, my, my, I got this little heater here. And sometimes for some reason it shuts off. You live in a country, but you're not, um, 
a citizen of that country. Now, we were like that in Ireland for a number of years, and then we got our citizenship. But you don't belong to that country, okay? So the idea is you reside there, but you don't belong. So that's what God calls us. Now, he says this. Now, look what he says, I beg you. Abstain, we know what that word means. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against your soul. See the problem? Your, your flesh, your sin nature wars against your new nature. Your sin nature wants to drag you down. And the Bible says, don't give into it at all. Resist it. The biggest problem we have is us, our hearts. And we have to mortify our flesh. We can't feed it. We can't take in the wrong things. You listen to and you look at the wrong things and it's going to take your mind captive. Abstain from that. Live holy in an unholy world. How? By putting the right things in our minds. Now, so that's the first point. And by the way, verse 12 gives us a reason for that as well. Not only because we're drawing closer to God, but so were testimony. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, okay, we could just say the unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, now note that, unbelievers are speaking against us as evildoers. We'll see that a little more later, right? That they, excuse me, they may by your good works, which they observe, they're looking, they're looking, it's word atoma epe, which means look upon, ophthalmologist, that's, that's the word, ophthalmo. They look at, they examine your life. Your life is being looked at by others, right? That they may see your good works, what they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, that when Jesus Christ comes back, the day of visitation, his return, they'll glorify God or they will be converted. Because they'll look at your lifestyle and they'll bring them to Christ. It'll help to bring them to Christ. It's another reason for us to live holy. Now, the unholy world will persecute us. The unholy world will persecute us. We saw in chapter 1, verse 1, that they are dispersed or scattered. Now, we haven't faced that type of persecution, and I hope we don't. God wants us to live a quiet and peaceable life. And I hope that continues. I think it's 1 Timothy 2, 2, or 1 Timothy 2, 4, somewhere around there. But that's God's desire. But we are facing persecution. Now, I want to show you maybe a practical way here. The unholy world, point two, will persecute you. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, excuse me, chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. First Peter chapter four, verse one, the whole, the, the unsaved world will persecute you. Look at this. Therefore, since Christ suffered, now replace that word suffered with died. Okay. That for, for now, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Since Christ died for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind for he who has died in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the idea is die to your flesh, mortify your flesh. Now, verse two that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh 
for the lusts or the desires of men. Influence. The world is trying to influence us, influence us to give into our flesh. That's the idea of that, right? But for the will of God. Now, verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lust. It's two sexual words, I think, have connotations of sexual immorality. Lewdness is a lasciviousness and and then uh, lust, right? Now, verse 3, and then it says, we used to walk this way. We used to live in this. We were characterized by this is the idea. Drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, okay? Speaks for themselves. Very commonplace at this time for the Gentiles to have drinking parties, to be drunk. Revelries is just cutting loose. And so you've got sex immorality and you've got drinking parties. And, and you, could, you could translate um, that word revelries into orgies. So you get the picture, what's going on, what they had to deal with. Now, it also talks about abominable idolatry is what I'll talk about in a moment. But I want you to notice in verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. In other words, that you don't cut loose and you're not out drunk and you're not involved with sexual immorality, speaking evil of you. That happens to us today if we try to take a stand. And more importantly, it is happening to our children today and in our schools. I read something, and I want to share this, very alarming, very alarming. And I, you know, we've been out of the country for so many years, and and I want to just read this. James Dobson, who started the Family Institute, writes in his book, Bringing Up Girls. This is 10 years ago, so it's even gotten worse. And and what he's doing is he's, he's... and, and James Dawson, by the way, was a, is a, a very renowned and very respected psychologist who actually served um, on the president's panel back, I think it was Reagan and, and maybe Bush, uh, Bush Sr., but very respected and, and a solid Christian. In his book, Bringing Up Girls, he speaks about the nonsense that is going on in our society and with our schools and what our children are being taught. Early sex, and this is, this is aimed at, 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 at what the girls are being taught right now. Early sexual experience is healthy, and for girls leads to empowerment. Virginity results from oppression and should be gotten rid of as soon as possible. That's the pressure that our kids are under. They speak evil of your teenager, even 12-year-old, if you don't think this way. There are no innate differences. This is the, excuse me. Uh, virginity res- results from oppression and should be gotten rid of as soon as possible. Hebrews 13, 4. Let the wedding bed be pure and God will judge fornicators and adulterers. This is the worst statement I think I've ever read. One of the worst anyway. So foolish. I can only think of Romans 1, 18. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. This is what they said. There are no innate differences between males and females. How do you make a statement like that? Except for the ability to bear children. 
To be truly equal, men and women should act and think alike. That's impossible. Even if you look at the chemical makeup of, of people. Estrogen versus, I mean, it's just, a or, or um, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. But anyway, testosterone, right? It's unbelievable. Women and girls should imitate predatory behavior of men. Modesty is old-fashioned, reflects the oppression of the past. Behavior that would have shocked previous generations doesn't raise an eyebrow today. The source of true power for young girls depends on maximizing their sex appeal and then marketing in the competition for boys. For a girl to become what was once considered easy or loose is now deemed socially acceptable by peers, therefore dressing and acting tough or looking like a prostitute is evidence of confidence and strength, to which I say, God help us. God help us. That's what your teenagers are being influenced. That's what their peers are being taught. Unfortunately, that's what some 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 year olds believe as well today. And so in verse 4, it says, in regard to these, they think it's strange. Something's wrong with you if you don't think that way. They think it's strange that you do not run with them. And then it says they speak evil of you. And that's what's taking place. And so there is in some way, shape or form this going on. There is a persecution going on. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, Brother Mark read that. And you don't have to turn there because of time, but I want you to know I want you to go back to verse three of chapter four. Look at verse three. Or excuse me. Yeah. Verse three. And you see that last phrase? And abominable idolatries. You see that? Abominable idolatries. Now, in the Greek culture, which permeated the region during this time, in the Greek culture. Greek gods indulge freely in sexual pleasure. Aphrodite was a priestess, and she had sex with strangers as a form of worship. It's called a temple prostitute. That's what the Gentiles were dealing with. That's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. He's speaking about temple prostitution which apparently people at Corinth were involved with. And that's why he tells them to flee sexual immorality. That word in the Greek, by the way, is pornea. That's where we get our English word pornography, which we'll talk about later in this study. Flee from it. Run from it, he says. Now, Go over to 1 Corinthians, but go to chapter 7, verse 1, because I just want to show you one point. Because even in quote-unquote evangelical circles, you now have to define what sexual immorality is. Sadly, you have to define that. So I'm going to do that for us today. This passage defines sexual immorality. You used to be able to go in a dictionary when I was growing up and look at fornication, and you could see the definition. Not necessarily the case today with some of the newer 
Now look what it says. Now concerning the things of which I wrote, of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Obviously, that means you can't just touch him. It, it means in a in this context, you'll see it's a sexual connotation. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, here's the definition: Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. There's the definition. Anything other than sexual relationships in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman is considered sexual immorality. Right there. You can't refute it. That means casual sex is condemned. That means living with somebody is condemned. That means incense is condemned. That means polygamy is condemned. That means homosexuality is condemned. And we could go on and on and on. It's condemned. Now, the other point I wanted to make as we go back to Peter, because it did talk about him, and I'm, I'm hitting this sexual immorality thing hard. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, is and why we turn there another problem in corinth apparently was was drinking and drunkenness and you don't have to turn there because if you would go to first corinthians chapter 11 verse 24 that during the lord's supper some of the believers in corinth were drunk were drunk so it was a problem and we'll talk about that whole drinking thing now Number three, and we're running out of time here, so I want to just touch on here, verse two. Salvation or positional holiness is a work of God. I believe that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. First Peter, or second Peter chapter three, verse nine. He's not willing that any should perish or come to repentance. First Peter chapter two, I think verse four, it's either verse two or verse four. I always get those, those two concepts mixed up. Um, God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So God wants every person to be saved. All right. I believe that. I also believe that God chooses who's going to be saved. And I cannot solidify that. I don't have to solidify it because God teaches both. Now, let me show you. First Peter 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect means to choose. And God chooses according to his foreknowledge, prognosco, which means know ahead of time. So God either knows ahead who's going to get saved or God knows ahead who he's going to choose to get saved. And I believe the latter, because I think the bulk of scriptures point to that. Now, I'm going to be a couple of them, and I'm going to tell you why I think this is significant. I want you to go to John chapter 21. I'm going to tell you why this is significant. John chapter 21, verse 6. I believe that we're saved because God wants all of us to be saved, yes, but also God does a work to bring us to salvation. And I'm going to show you from the scriptures why I believe that. This is one passage. John chapter 21, verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. This is after, after the disciples, you know, Christ is risen. And disciples go back to their jobs. And then Christ sees them again. And they didn't catch fish. And he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find some. Find some what? Fish. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because the multitude of fish. So 
that word draw means to drag the fish against their will into the boat. Everyone would acknowledge that, right? The fish don't want to get dragged into the boat. They're not saying, I am a willing participant here. No, they're dragging the fish. They catch in the net and they drag them into the boat, right? Now, skip down again to, um, to verse 10, right? So 1 Peter, or excuse me, John chapter 6, verse 10, or verse um, 11, excuse me, verse 11, John 21, verse 11. See, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land. What was in the net? The fish. What did he do? He drug the net into the land against the will of the fish. Now, why do I do all that? Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And again, there's a reason for this. God would have all men to be saved. God's not willing that any should perish, all come to repentance. I believe that with all my heart because the Bible teaches it. I also believe that God has to do a work and God is the one that saves us. And look at verse 44, John 6. John 6, verse 44, Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. That's exactly the same Greek word. Unless my father drags you to me, you're not going to come to me. That's what it says. And then it says, and I will raise him up at the last day. I get, you get dragged into salvation because then you're going to be raised from the dead. And so God wants everybody to be saved, but salvation is a work of God. And why do I say that? Because there's so many manipulators out there today. I was at a church one time and the guy sat up there for 10 minutes asking for people to pray a prayer. And then five people got manipulated and they prayed a prayer to get saved. I was praying they wouldn't. They didn't get saved. They got manipulated to make a decision. And then they go out and they live their lives. And I've seen people who are living wickedly and, and say, I got saved when I was a child. I prayed a prayer and I wrote it in my Bible. That doesn't mean a thing. It means nothing. It's a work of God. And what I'm saying is this. And when you present the gospel, when you're sharing the gospel with your children, we never forced our kids to be saved. When our kids came to us and said they wanted to be saved, we continued to share the gospel and said, you keep praying about it. Because we didn't want to manipulate it's a work of God. You share the gospel and you let God save you. Now, so salvation or positional holiness is a work of God. And then finally, and we're out of time, but I'm just going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. I know this is a long message and I typically the introductions are, so I apologize for that. 1 Peter chapter 1. Salvation is an event, but progressive sanctification is a process. And I'm going to just go here in Hebrews and we're done real quick because I want to show you something that I think is important. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit. We'll talk about that in a second. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Salvation, and then it says, and then it says grace to you. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. It costs us nothing to get saved. 
but it cost God everything. His blood was sprinkled, right? In the Old Testament, you had the brazen altar or the bronze altar. And it was five cubits by five cubits or about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. And I think it was about three cubits high, about four and a half feet. That's where the animal sacrifices would go into. But when the priest, the high, or when the priest, the, the ironic priest, right? Not just the Levites, the ironic priest, when they would kill the animal, they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the sides of the bronze altar as a temporary covering for sin, right? Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He paid the price for our sins. And what a great price. And he died for the whole world on the cross. Now, sanctification is a, in the sanctification of the Spirit, is a process. We get saved positionally, we're right with God. But then we progressively become more like Christ. And that's a work of the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, we're going to wrap it up here. Hebrews chapter 10. I know this has been long, but this is a treasure. Trust me, you'll want to see this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. As we wrap up, salvation is an event, but progressive sanctification is a progress as we talk about holiness. Hebrews chapter 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That word sanctified is in the perfect tense. That means completed action with ongoing results. Your salvation is completed if you trust that Christ as your Savior. You're sanctified. Positionally, you can never lose your salvation if you're truly a believer. Now, it's also in the passive voice. That means you're the receiver of the action. That means we had nothing to do with it. God is the one that declared us righteous, right? Now, it also says once for all. When Jesus died on the cross, the last words I believe that he said was, it is finished. And it means paid in full. And it comes from the Greek word to tell estai. And in that culture, when you paid your taxes, they would write on the back of a receipt to tell estai. Paid in full. It means you don't have to pay anymore. Now, verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. That goes on in some churches today. Transubstantiation. They sacrifice Christ, a bloody sacrifice, according to their official documents, afresh. Every week, Christ is being sacrificed. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, note that, for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work was done. From, from that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. Now, salvation is event, but progressive progressive sanctification is a process. We saw it's an event, but here's the process. For by one offering he has perfected, he has made us right, okay? That's, that's 
the same thing that's being said in verse 10, the one-time sacrifice positionally, you're right with God, okay? But then it says this, who has perfected forever, and then it kind of like qualifies. Who's the person that's really the believer? Here's the quality. Those who are being sanctified. You see, the person that says, I got saved, and their life hasn't changed, don't isn't the person that's speaking of. The person is saved, the person who is sanctified, right, perfected, is the one who is being sanctified. It's an evidence of salvation. Being made holy. Sanctification or salvation is an event, but progressive sanctification or being made more like Christ is a process. Because that word there, that last word there, is in the present tense passive voice, and it's a participle. Passive voice means that it's God who is sanctifying us. God is making us more like Christ. It's in the present participle, which means it, you can put on the end, sanctifying. God is sanctifying us. For those who are being sanctified, would probably be better rendered sanctifying. For those who are being sanctifying, but I guess that would be hard to write that in. But that's the idea. So salvation is an event, but God is sanctifying us or making us like Christ. So when we talk about living holy in an unholy world, we need the power of God to do that. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. We trust and pray that you would take it and use it in our lives as you see fit. The spirit of God is in each believer. And I pray he would personally encourage us and challenge us today. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old Bridge Baptist Church. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening on. We appreciate your support, and we hope you have a God-blessed day.